It is August the 12th. Welcome to his church. Uh, welcome to a gathering that embraces, that holds on to, that believes in, and celebrates God's scandalous grace. And welcome to eight week in our, our study, Understanding the Bible. Okay, let's do this. Now, he had been through a lot. And I'm talking about capital A-L-O-T, a lot, with many exclamation points. Five times he received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. He had been in prison very frequently, frequently bound in chains. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent the day and the night in the open sea. He was constantly in danger. In danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from his own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles. He was in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. Brothers, He, he was in danger. And he had often been cold, hungry, thirsty, and naked. And now Paul leans his tired and weary, worn, broken body up against a a wall in a prison cell in Rome, awaiting for his sentence of death to be carried out. He has in his hand a pen and a scroll. And as he writes these words, he squints in the darkness, and, and you can hear that the sound of his chains clanking as he writes, and you can feel the passion that this man has for the Word of God, and knowing that the words he's about to write will be some of the last he will ever put the paper. Here's what he says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Father God, open our hearts and minds to your word today. May your word find fertile soil, not just in the chairs, but also in the heart of the guy standing up here. May your will be done. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, now, that word, if you go back to that last slide, make every effort, that's just one word in Greek, and it's the Greek word, spudazzo. Spudazzo, right? Sounds Italian, right? Uh, say it with me. Spudazzo. Spudazzo. <laughs> it means make every effort, endure, labor, be diligent to exert oneself, to use speed, to make haste. Question. Are you making every effort? Are you being diligent? Are you laboring and exerting yourself so that you can handle the word of truth correctly? I mean, on a, on a scale of one to ten, what grade would you give yourself? And if you were to present yourself to God at this very moment... Displaying before him how correctly you handle the word of truth. Would you not be ashamed or would you be ashamed? Like, what grade would God give you on a scale of 1 to 10? And how would you feel if God put your name and your, and your score on the screen right now? Brothers and sisters, that's why we're doing this messy series, Understanding the Bible. And listen, the only way for you and I to handle the Bible correctly is to read it armed with some basic principles of, of hermeneutics. 
And as I said in the past, don't let that fancy word intimidate you. It just comes from a Greek word that means to explain or to interpret. And here's the deal. If you're reading the Bible, you're already interpreting it. You already have a hermeneutical framework in mind because you can't read the Bible for very long before you start wondering, hey, what does this, what does this mean? So the issue is not whether or not you have a basic interpreting framework, because we all do. No, the issue is whether or not your framework is clear or unclear, accurate or inaccurate, adequate or inadequate, and is your framework, your way of interpreting the Bible, is it leading you closer into God's truth? Or is it leading you further away from God's truth? Get it? Good. And so last week we unpacked one of the foundational principles of hermeneutics, the principle of aim, the author's intended meaning. And listen, the aim, the, the meaning that the author intended must be your aim in studying the Bible. Understand, it, it, it's not about what the text means to you or what you see in the Word or what we see in the Word as we wear our 21st century glasses colored by our own emotions, experiences, and the culture we live in. Instead, it's about what did the author mean when he wrote the words? I mean, if I wrote a letter to somebody, it, it means what I meant that letter to mean and nothing else. And, and so when we look at the Bible, we're trying to say, hey, what did, what did Isaiah, what did Jeremiah, what did Paul, what did Peter, what did Luke, what did James, what did Moses mean when he wrote that verse? And I said, unfortunately, I mentioned last week that many times we ask the wrong question. Right? We sit in our Bible studies. We go around the circle. Hey, what does that mean to you? And Sue says that. What does that mean to you? Sally says that. You know, you got like 29 different meanings. And listen, that is, that is not the right question, and it's not the first question. The first question is, what did the author mean when he wrote that passage? And, and I think here's what helps to, uh, uh, us to do our best in God's word, to to know the difference between meaning and application. Meaning is singular, right? It is tied to the text. There is one meaning, one interpretation. Application, how we live out the text, is what? Multifaceted and, and it's varied, right? In other words, how, how you live out a particular passage may be different than how your mom, your wife, your husband, or someone on the other side of the world lives out that passage, Think of all the ways that, you know, loving your neighbor can be lived out. Or how about this verse here, particularly the part about compassion. Paul writes to the church in Colossae, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You know, there are many ways that we could clothe ourselves with compassion, right? Many ways that we can live out compassion. In fact, on September 23rd, Compassion Sunday, when we meet here at 8.30 for about 30 minutes and head out to our community, there are five different projects, right? You know, and some of those projects, some will be singing, some will be painting fingernails, some will be moving things in a warehouse, and some will be doing landscape outside, right? Some will be helping the pregnancy center move, right? You know, some will be doing various things at Love, Inc. Some will be singing at the Laurels, right? Many, and all those are compassion, different ways to live it out. 
Again, aim is a foundational principle for us in the Bible correctly. Remember, there are certain things that we do not have the right to simply interpret what they mean to us, right? Military orders, a summons to court, right? A traffic citation, answer to a math problem, a written assignment from your boss or professor, a legal contract. So why do we think that we have the right to make the Bible mean whatever is convenient, comfortable, or culturally acceptable at the time? And let me be clear. We do not have that right. Now understand, the Bible is not some living, growing, moldable document that, that we get to shape and modify to mean whatever we want it to mean. Understand, God's word does not conform to the cultural norms of the day. Instead, God's word is intended to transform cultural norms at all times and in all generations. Get it? Good. And that's all I can have time to say about AIM. If you want to know more about it, listen to the message from last week. It's online. As with all these messages about understanding the Bible, uh, which is pretty important, right? Because one day you're going to present yourself to God how well you handled it. So you may want to check those out if you miss any of those. The next principle is foundational. I, I briefly mentioned it last week. It's about respecting the king. And listen, if you and I are going to be legit Bible students, we must, we both must learn and embrace the following mantra. Context is king. Context is king. Context is king. Say it with me three times. Context is king. Context is king. Context is king. Has something you ever said been taken out of context? Have you ever taken something out of context, verbally or non-verbally? Yeah, I did it a little over a week ago. You know, I'm on my chair sitting, my wife's across the room, and we're having a discussion, capital D discussion. Maybe, Mary, you have some of those. And, and she was on her phone, and as I was talking, she was shaking her head to something on the phone. But I thought she was shaking her head to what I was saying. And my inner Irishman was unleashed, Right? And it wasn't pretty at all. I mean, I have so far to go. When I say I'm messed up, I am. When I say you're messed up, you are. Okay? <laughs> Let's just... And I remember we're doing a study of the book of James, um, James chapter 3, talking about human wisdom versus spiritual wisdom. And I called that sermon, Don't Be Stupid. And of course, I took advantage of the fact that you could turn to the right and left and look at your husband or wife and say, Don't be stupid. And it was so much fun. And I didn't realize that. Joe Johnson had stepped out during that part. And after church, I walked up to Joe, looked in the eye, I said, hey, Joe, don't be stupid. And the look he gave me, he's like, wait, wait a second, I, I got some explaining to do here, right? Because, you know, I was, I was starting to get a little bit scared, right? Yeah, yeah, context is king in understanding people and situations. You know, several years back, AmeriQuest, a financial company, did a series of commercials about how you could take things out of context and misunderstand what's happening. Here, here are some of the ones I think are really funny. <laughs> uh, um, context matters, amen? <laughs> uh, it matters in life. It, it matters in all, I'm crying. <laughs> it, it matters in all forms of communication. And it most definitely matters in understanding the Bible. 
In fact, as I already said, context is king. And because context is king, that means that context must rule over our understanding of any passage or text of Scripture. And here's the deal. We make more mistakes by pulling passages out of their context than any other mistake we make in interpreting the Bible at it together. Now, simply put, as you see in this diagram up here, um, context is basically this. You have your verse, then you have the surrounding verses, right? you got a word. It's got words around it. It's in a sentence, right? It's in a paragraph. It's in a chapter. It's in the entire book of, a Bible, of the Bible. And now what I want to do is I want to spend some time looking at some well-known passages that have been the frequent victim of being taken out of context. And I must confess, one reason I know these is because I violated that. I victimized these passages before. And listen, this is so important, Ten. When we take a passage, we take a verse out of a God-inspired context, we lose the power, the truth, and the spiritual authority of what is being said. I'm going to repeat that. When we pull a verse out of its God-inspired, God-breathed context, we lose the power, the truth, and the spiritual authority of what is being said. Get it? Good. Here's a verse First verse I want to talk about, Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. Anybody ever heard that verse? Ever heard it used this way before? Well, I know not many people showed up for prayer meeting tonight or Bible study. Wherever two or three are gathered in your name, Lord, we know you're here, right? You ever hear it used that way? Is that what Jesus is teaching? That he's only with us when two or three people are gathered? Does that mean that if it's just us, Jesus isn't there? Right? I love this little cartoon, this little girl. I wish someone else would show up so Jesus would come in with me, right? And Jesus, like, he's at the door. Like, I'd like to be with you, but I can't because it's just you. Okay, maybe the king contest can help us uncover the true meaning. And that begins at Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If that was obeyed, there'd be a whole lot less issues in the church. Amen? Right? Because we'd rather talk about somebody than talk to them, right? We'd rather form our coalition rather than have coffee across the state with a brother or sister and find out, hey, we really are not that far apart and we actually do love each other, right? And by the way, that's the command of Jesus, right? You got an issue with somebody. And here's the deal. You come to me and you say you're mad at somebody, my first question would be, have you talked to them yet? And if you'd say no, I'd say, then you don't need to talk to me. You need to talk to them, right? You know, keep the circle small. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if not, if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 19.15 there. The Mosaic law that said for anyone to be, uh, you know, found guilty of any crime, there must be two or three witnesses. If he refuse, he continues, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or IRS agent. <laughs> Tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Can I tell you that if two or three of you 
on earth, agree upon anything you ask, it'll be done for you by my Father in heaven, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. So, so what's the context of that verse? It's, what's he talking about? He, he's talking about that difficult task that, that we don't like to do, right? To, to, to confront somebody, to carry out church discipline. I understand Jesus saying that if two or three brothers come to a decision that another person is in sin, that they have Jesus' legal authority to carry out discipline on him, even to excommunicating him. So rather than justifying a small prayer service, uh, this text is a legal ordinance for carrying out one of the most neglected practices of the modern church, the discipline of wayward members. So here's the bottom line. Jesus said, whenever two or three get together for this difficult task of, of church discipline, someone has sin in their life, whenever two or three people gather to protect my name, to protect my person, to protect my church, I have their back. And I will show up in a very, very special way. I saw this verse lived out. I used to misquote it until probably sometime 2003. That's a lot of years of misquoting it. Um, and, and I started reading, and go, wow, this is pretty powerful. Because my leaders and I in Georgia were dealing with an area of church discipline where we had to go to someone's house and deal with an issue. And, and, and we didn't want to do it, but we knew we had to do it. And I said, guys, look, Jesus is saying that if we do this, we pray over it, that he's going to show up in a special way. You know, he's going to back us up. He's got our back. We get to this person's house and we go to their kitchen. There's three of us elders, and they had someone with them. They invited another member to attend this meeting. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, I don't know. This isn't, you're saying things in your head that you can't say out loud. I wasn't expecting this was supposed to be just us. You brought someone in here. And the beauty of it was that when the meeting was over, when that person we talked to began to say how mean we were, how hateful we were, the person they invited, you know what they said? The leaders could not have been more loving and more compassionate. It was so-and-so who was meanful, mean and hateful. So I believe it's because we prayed over that passage. We said, Jesus, will you have a rack on this? Because we're kind of scared to do this, and we don't want to be taken wrong in it, okay? Here's the next verse that suffered a lot of being uh, taken out of context. In fact, it's out of context. Interpretation has sold countless posters, pictures, and it's been... And this verse taken out of context has been printed on more T-shirts and coffee mugs than would fit in this entire room. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. What does that mean? Is Jesus teaching that I can do anything, that through Christ I can teach that class, earn that degree, get that A, that I can climb that mountain, that I can run a mile in under four minutes, that I can bench press 350 pounds, uh, that I can sing in a praise band, that I can be a quarterback in the NFL, that I can win the next Dancing with the Stars competition, right? Is that what he's saying? I can't sing, I can't dance, I got no rhythm, I'm old and weak, all right? None, <laughs> I, I own it. So is that what it's saying, that I can do anything because anything I want to do, Jesus will give me the power to do it? Is that what it's teaching? Again, let's look at the context. And note that Paul's in prison when he wrote these words. Okay. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. 
I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It was good for you to share in my troubles. So what's the content? It's Paul's ongoing and unyielding contentment, even in the face of the most tremendous difficulties life had thrown his way. You see, in context, Paul is basically saying this. Yeah, it's hard. It's tough. It's been tough. And it's really difficult right now. I'm barely hanging on. But you know what? I can endure it. I can't stand up under anything. I can handle anything and still be content as long as I have Jesus who has and will give me the ability to endure even in the most difficult and tragic of circumstances. I, for one, think that's a whole lot more powerful in context than it is out of context. You see, our contentment need not depend on our outward, on our outward circumstances being perfect. In fact, they never will be. And in this passage, Paul reveals the secret to real, lasting, enduring contentment. No matter what happens around us, no matter what happens to us, it's having a deep personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus is our contentment. Jesus is our contentment. Jesus is our contentment. And Jesus is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Listen, like you, you know, I've known people, right, who are really, I mean, they're going through, you know, call them Paul, call them Job, whatever you want to call them. Their life is beating them up. They just suffered a terrible loss. They just got a, a bad diagnosis, right? You know, what was in remission now is a, it's an aggression ripping through their body, right? They just got laid off. You name the crisis. I've known people like that who are more content and more happy and more at peace than people whose lives are going smoothly. And why is that? Because the ones going through the trouble, right, have depended on Jesus Christ, who makes all the difference, right? That's what Paul's saying. Hey, you know what? Doesn't matter what life throws in my way. Jesus will help me get through it. He may not take it away, you know, but he'll be my peace in the storm, right? That's what he's saying. I can do anything. As long as I have Jesus, I'm good. Get it? Good. Here's the next passage, also in Philippians. It's a bunch in Philippians we're going to talk about this morning. Um, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, the question, is the meaning of this passage that when people come to Christ, that, that all the things that they have previously chased hard after, right? I mean, they were chasing hard after money and applause and popularity and possessions and, and, and pleasure and worldly success. Is that person saying, you know what, all those things I once fought for and chased after, you know what, they are rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Is that what it's teaching? Now, that's very powerful, and it's very true, but it's not what that passage is teaching. In fact, what it's teaching, in my opinion, is so much more powerful. Now, i got to be honest. I've taken that passage out of context before 
Because it really made the point that I wanted to preach on. <laughs> and, and, and I've even taken out of context, and this is really awful when I knew I was taken out of context. And, and when I did that, I robbed that verse of his power, of his truth, and of its spiritual authority. So what is this text teaching? What is the compact? What is the context? Context is king. Here's what he writes. Begin to chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He's in prison. It's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. I, kind of, I could preach on this, but I can't. <laughs> you know, joy is a safeguard for you. Yeah. Being joyful is a safeguard, right? When you're joyful in the Lord, when you rejoice in the Lord, that's a safeguard, right? That keeps the enemy at bay, right? You know, we need to be a more joyful people, right? And sometimes we need to let our face know we're happy when sometimes, right? Face didn't know, hey, I'm actually happy right now. He goes on, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. You see, there were, there were teachers coming into the church at Philippi who were trying to put the law, the burden of the law, back on the church in Philippi. Paul writes, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, you want to talk about being a good rule keeper? Paul says, bring it on. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever it was to my prophet, all those rules I kept, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, which is more what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see, for years, Paul, maybe like some in this room, had lived believing that that, that his righteousness, that, that, that his being right with God was something that he had to earn by what he did. And so for years, Paul went all in, trying by his own effort to measure up, to earn, to deserve, to achieve salvation, to be right with God. Yet he always knew somehow he was falling short. However, now that Paul has tasted the salvation that comes by Grace through faith. A salvation that, that is fueled by the unfailing love of God and was bought by the bloodstained cross of Christ. He considers all of his past human effort to try to be what he's supposed to be. And any additional effort he might add to that as nothing but rubbish. You see, Paul had experienced the beauty, the power and the peace of living from grace rather than living for grace. And he was never going back. I'm living from where I am in Christ. I'm not living to get into Christ. There's a big difference. Now, as a believer, he was still all in. I, I think he actually did more, right? He did more after he came to Christ but not for his salvation, but from his salvation. Not, not, not motivated 
to earn, but motivated by love and gratitude and thankfulness. He didn't serve. He didn't get beating to earn it. He goes, hey, you know what? I'm saved by grace through faith. If I'm going to be beaten for Christ, let it, let it be. Let it happen. Context is king. Next, have you ever heard this expression, God will never give you more than you can handle? Someone mentioned this to me after church last week. You know, where did that come from? Is it true? Is it in the Bible? Well, well here's where that, that belief, that saying comes from. It, it, is, it does come from a misunderstanding of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful and not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now the word translated tempt or temptation in that passage is the same word. And it can mean trial, testing, or temptation. And some people choose to view it as trial. And therefore the verse would read this way. No trial is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. But when you're tested, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Okay, what does the king have to say about that verse and that word? You see, context also determines the meaning of a word. Several weeks back, I was in the office talking to Hannah, and I was talking about discernment and context, and one of the couple of the Boy Scout leaders came in, peeked in the office and said, hey, we're here to snag our flags. And I go, here, snag the flags. Well, the word snag means to rip, to tear, an unexpected obstacle, right? Uh, A sharp projection, right? Or to catch or obtain something. I chose to believe they were just grabbing their flags, and not, well, they're going to tear their flags, right? See, see context, right? Helps us, hey, because the word can mean different things, right? You know, if you hear the word, it was a ball. That means one thing, it was an umpire, right? It means another thing, it was Cinderella, right? <laughs> you know, it, you know it's, it's a different, it's a different, it, but it's the same word, right? Context helps determine the meaning. And, and, and uh, the context you find, it's in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 13, I'm not going to read the whole verse. You guys have your own Bibles. What the context is, I'll tell you. You can check it out if I'm, if I'm like, lying to you. Um, the context is God saying, hey, you know what? God's people in the past really messed up. They did evil things. They committed sin. Some committed sexual immorality, and God killed 23,000 people. That's kind of, like, crazy. <laughs> you know? And, and, like, God says these things happen to them to warn you guys. Right? And, and, and so that's the context. You know, and some people, right, they had fallen into sin because they had given into the temptation. But, but the promise, you see what the promise is? I, I, got, I got to read the promise. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Did you see what that's saying? Those of us who are old enough, we can't be Flip Wilson and say, the devil made me do it, right? And the devil asked me to do it, right? <laughs> but I said, no, right? Because the promise there is God says, you know what? I have limited how deeply God can tempt my children. 
Because God knows there's some temptations that some of us, you know what, we'd be toast instantly, right? Instantly. And so God says, I'm going to limit. You know, I'm not going to let them tempt you beyond what you can bear. And every time you're tempted, I'm going to provide an escape hatch that you can get out of it. What a promise, right? God is protecting you. He loves you so much. He will not let your enemy tempt you beyond what you can actually bear. Here's a side note on that. You know, um, God won't give you more than you can handle. Here's the real deal. God probably will give you more than you can handle. But he will never give you more than he can handle. And and it's meant to drive you to him, right? Have you ever faced more than you can handle? That's why that's such a stupid thing to say. Especially if you say that to someone going through a hard time. I know your life's crashing, your, your dog died, your tractor's broke, you know, the Lord won't give you more than you can handle. That's, that's discouraging, right? You're like, I'm not handling it well. No, he won't. And when he gives you more than you can handle, that's so that you say, God, will you help me? Because I cannot do this on my own. Uh, here is another victim of uh, being taken out of context. You may have seen it printed on an evangelist, evangelistic track or brochure. Revelations 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. Question, what does this verse mean? What is Jesus saying? Is this verse talking about a lost person asking for the first time for Jesus to come into the life for salvation? Many think so, right? I mean, that's why they print it on their evangelistic brochures. But remember, our opinion is not king. Context is king. And when we let the context tell us what this verse means, it means something very different and something I find very comforting because I'm messed up. And remember, when we take a verse out of its context, God-inspired context, right, we lose the, we lose the power of the truth and the spiritual authority of what's being said, right? I mean, it's a big deal to take a verse out of context. We lose a lot. So, so here's, a, here's the context. It's in Revelation chapter 3. For the angel, to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one of them. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. And I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold from, pure gold from me, refined in the fire, so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne. That is crazy. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So what's the context? It's Jesus is talking to the church in Laodicea. He's talking to Christians, right? Who were lukewarm, who, who were not fully living for God, who, who had taken pride in their wealth and in their way of life. And Jesus, he's, he's angry with them, and he calls them to repent. And the awesome promise is that, that even when we're lukewarm, e- even when we sin, right, even when we're not 
fully living for him. Jesus is just waiting outside of the door, waiting for us to say, you know what? I'm messing up. I repent. And Jesus says, man, I'm just waiting. When you do that, I'm going to come in and we're going to eat together, right? In that culture, I meant fellowship. I'm going to renew and refresh and revive our relationship, right? And I got to tell you, someone who messes up an awful lot, who sins a lot, (laughs) who gets it wrong a lot, I find that very powerful and encouraging to know, even in my mess up, he's just right behind the door. He's right here. Come on, Steve. Come on, Steve. You knucklehead. (laughs) You know you're screwing up. You know that's not working. You know that's wrong. Come on, just repent. Yes. I'm here. Let's do it. I mean, I love it. I love that picture. And, and, And You see what I'm saying? When we take a verse out of its context, we lose the truth and power and spiritual authority of that verse. This principle is going to be really quick, so don't fear. Principle of observation. No, we're going to stop. Because I think that's enough to chew on. That's enough to chew on for today. Isn't it? I want you to know, wherever you are, even if you're by yourself, God is with you, right? You don't need two or three people. I want you to know, whatever you're going through, right, that you can endure, you can stand up against anything, not on your own strength, but on Jesus who gives you strength will carry you if he, if he has to. And I want you to know that your salvation doesn't depend on what you do or what you don't do. You're not less saved this week because you didn't do so good. You know, right? We are saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by our works, right? You know, we work from our salvation. We don't work for our salvation, right? And you know what? Sometimes God will give you more than you can handle, but never more than he can handle so that you'll run to him. And if you're a Christian and you're being tempted, know that you're protected. If you you give in, it's your fault. It's your fault, right? Devil didn't make you do it. God didn't make you do it, right? Because God says, I'm going to limit him. He's a dog on a chain, right? I'm going to limit him. If you don't don't go within that barrier, he's not going to get you. And what a promise that God makes. I won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And, and, And what a great thing to know. You may be here today and you're like, man, you know, I've been living wrong. I feel like I'm lukewarm what do I got to do? Do I got to read my Bible every day this week? Do I got to pray for 12 hours? What do I got to do? Jesus said, you just got to repent and I'm going to come in and eat with you, have a meal and everything's fine and good, right? That's the God that we serve. And that's the word that he gave us to build us up and to make us stronger. Would you stand and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And God, I, I pray right now for a person in this room, Lord, who is going through a hard time, that they realize that you can give them the strength to endure. It'll still be hard. It'll still be difficult. It'll still hurt. But you will help them stand up under it. Pray for that person who, who still thinks they have to work and earn their salvation. I pray they realize they don't. It's a gift. God, I, 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 pray for that, I pray for that person, Lord, who just needs to repent. They're playing games. They're lukewarm. 
And though you stand at the door waiting for them to repent, they still need to do that. Or else they may get spit out of your mouth. Amen.